All right, friends. Well, hey, open up your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Again, Ephesians 2, verse 18, where we are kicking off our Love Your Church sermon series. Uh, Love Your Church is uh, just going to be our emphasis for the next two months, really, where we're going to talk about the joy and the privilege and the responsibility of belonging to the local church. Uh, Who are we and what has God given us to do here in the world? We can't wait to jump in. Just a reminder that we have a a book of that same title that we're using as a resource following along. We hope everybody got a copy of Love Your Church. If you didn't, we have more in the back at the welcome table. Make sure to grab your copy today because we're going to be, again, digging into this together for a few months, uh, not only on Sunday morning, but we also were going to have uh, our community groups walking through the content. And so if you're in a community group starting this week, the discussions are going to be around Love Your Church. This week is chapter one. Um, and if you look on your, with your bulletin, you should have gotten a little sermon notes page. If you look at the back of that, it has the community group discussion questions. So you can uh, look ahead and see what the conversation is going to be like in your groups. You can read through those ahead of time and see. Um, also, again, we, uh, even if you're not in a community group, uh, one, we'd love for you to be in the group, but if you're not, you can still read through the book uh, along with us as we preach through it. So again, everybody, we want to have a copy of it. We realize this is a big topic, a big question to wrestle through. What does it mean to be the church and the call to love your church? You may be saying, love your church? I'm not even sure I like the church. I'm not even sure I like my church. Like, I love, you know, the 49ers and the start of the football season right, today. Woo. And I love my spouse, you know, and I love tacos. But love the church, I'm still, I don't know, trying to wrap my heart around that. I don't know about the church. Think of the history of the church or the institution of the church. I don't know, maybe there's questions that come to mind for you. And so some of us today, right, we gravitate at times towards a faith that says, well, I know I love Jesus, but I'm not sure about uh, the people of Jesus. And I know I want to follow Jesus, but, but I'm not so sure the church is going to help me follow Jesus. Maybe we'd say it's optional or the church is even, some would say, detrimental to your life with Jesus. Some people feel that way. Or some of us would say, well, I'm going to leave the church and Jesus altogether. Some of us have walked in that at times, or we know people, right, who have said, no, I'm out of the church, out of the faith, want nothing to do with that anymore at all. Or some of us are committed to Jesus and the church. We're here. We know it's important, but we're not entirely sure why. You know, if we were pressed and we had to articulate what the church is and what it's about and why it's so valuable, we're not really sure what we would say. We'd probably say something about learning about God, something about community, something about, you know, social action in the world. And maybe we get pieces of the picture, but sometimes we struggle to see the whole What really is it all about? And so I've sensed just in recent years our our need to recapture a compelling vision and picture for who we are as a church, what we should be about in the world, uh, seeing our life as a church as as central to God's work in the world, central to uh, the work God wants to do here in Benicia and in the Bay Area, central to our own growth and transformation and development as individual followers of Jesus, And so we're going to be talking about this for a few months now, using uh, this morning Ephesians 2 as our guide. We're not walking through the book of Ephesians. We're going to be jumping around to different passages in the months ahead. But this morning, we're in Ephesians chapter 2. And you heard it aloud, but look at it again with me. Verse 18. It says, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. So just a little context for us. The book of Ephesians, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church, followers of Jesus in Ephesus, which is actually uh, much of the New Testament, right? Letters written by the apostles to local churches scattered throughout the ancient world. So he, a letter here written to the church in Ephesus. We're picking up in chapter two here, and we see the, the bigger context within which we're looking is about the unity of the church. How the people of God are this new people, this new family, this, this multi-ethnic combination of Jews and Gentiles, all nations and languages represented, thrown together into one new people. And Paul's going to tell us a few things about who the church is, who we are as the church. So before we look at what we're supposed to do and be about, the action we're supposed to take, first he wants to make sure that the church understands who they are. And so verse 19 says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. So there's a few images Paul's going to use to describe the church. And the first one is that we are a new people. You see that in verse 19. He uses the language of no longer being foreigners and strangers, but citizens. Citizens. See, in the ancient world, a city like Ephesus uh, would, if you were a citizen there, it would come with certain rights and privileges, some protections of belonging as a citizen there. You had status. You had recognition as a citizen, while foreigners or those who would resettle and relocate to the city, uh, even if they were there for generations, might lack certain voting rights or privileges or protections that citizens would enjoy. There was great pride in being especially a Roman citizen or being from a certain city or certain region, right? Being an insider, they're carried with it a, a status. It was an identity marker for people. And we know today, right, especially young people, we're asking questions about identity. Where do I belong? To whom do I belong? Who are my people? Right, in the same way in the ancient world, your identity, who you were, was wrapped up in where you came from, the nation, the city to which you belonged. And so here we see Paul telling the church something significant, saying that, hey, for a Christian, your citizenship, your homeland... Your identity, where you belong, is not grounded ultimately in any earthly kingdom or nation. It's not about being Roman or Persian or Greek or Egyptian. As a Christian, you are a citizen of the people of God. You're a part of his kingdom. That's what your passport ultimately reads. You're a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the kingdom of God which was, again, radical in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, your worship, the gods you served, was tied to your geography, was tied to your nation, to your city. There were local tribal deities. There were uh, Roman gods. There were uh, gods or goddesses of your specific city. And you were to honor them. And if you didn't honor them, your neighbors would get mad at you because you were going to upset the local deities. 
But now Paul is saying something quite radical. The early church is saying, no, actually, we are all called to worship the one true God. All people everywhere, no matter your tribe or tongue or, or nation, the language that you speak, where you come from, what you look like, you are called to worship the one true God. And we all together are to be one new people, one new nation in Christ. This new people we're called to be as the church, it's radically diverse, crosses racial and ethnic boundaries. It crosses uh, social and economic boundaries, social status, class separations, rich and poor worshiping together as brothers and sisters, young and old worshiping together as brothers and sisters. It's this beautiful, diverse, new nation that we belong to as the people of God. Uh, Zoe just started kindergarten this week, and she's going to Robert Semple Elementary here in town. We live in that neighborhood. She walks to the school. We love that she's a part of Robert Semple. Any other Robert Semple dragon families in here? What's up? All right. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of school pride that goes with that. There's great leadership at that school. We're thrilled that she's there. And they have this real sense of like, we are the Robert Semple dragons. Like you belong. All the families, we're in this together and they wear spirit wear and they're, you know, dragon stuff on Fridays. And like, we're a Robert Semple family. Apparently they used to be the Robert Semple, uh, what is it? Sea, sea wolves, not sea wolves. Sea hawks, the sea hawks. Was anyone a sea hawk at Robert Simple back in the day? That was it before the dragons, apparently. I learned this recently. Okay, so whether it's a sea hawk or a dragon, whatever, part of the Robert Simple family. We love it there. But what I realized, I was really impressed by their leadership, the way they create this culture of belonging. Hey, you're a Robert Simple family. You're, you're a dragon. This is great. But I realized, like, as important as that is and as special as that is, uh, her time at Robert Simple is going to end. Right? And so she's going to graduate and she's going to go on to another school and she's going to leave her years at Robert Semple behind. And she'll have kind of this like new school, this new identity, this new tribe that she'll belong to with her new school. And that'll change right as she gets older. You kind of age out. So I was thinking about that. I was like, man, as great as it is at Robert Semple, as much as we love it, like it's not going to be forever. And the church is so different and so special and so unique because it's not something that you age out of, Right? It's, you're a part of the same people, the same tribe when you're young, when you grow up, when you retire. You have this one same family that you're to, to carry on with. You don't age out of the church. That's a beautiful picture that, that we are this new people, this diverse group of citizens of the people of God that you never graduate from. But with all this diversity, we have to ask them again, what is it that unites us? Or if there are different nations and ethnicities and languages represented and different ages, old and young and rich and poor and different social status, all that crime uh, brought together as one new people, what is it then that unifies us? <clears throat> That's right. Of course, you, you knew I was going there. You're like, Pastor, we know the answer. It's Jesus. And it, and it is, right? So we are a new people centered on Jesus. And the text makes it clear, right? Verse 18, it says, through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Through him, through, through who? Through Jesus. So in Ephesians chapter two, Paul is writing again about this unity that is shared in the church between Jew and Gentile, between all people. We're with one new people and it's through Jesus that we both, Jew or Gentile alike, have access to the Father by one spirit. So it's through Jesus, his work on the cross, his redemption, 
his resurrection that we have access to God. And isn't that the heart of the gospel, that we once were alienated from God, separate from him because of our sin and our rebellion and God and his great love and mercy, he saved us. He sent his son to die for us, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be able to approach his throne of grace and mercy without fear, but through faith in Jesus, washed by his blood, redeemed by his work. We have access to the Father because of Jesus. And you see, verse 20 and 21 points out the centrality of Jesus as well. Look, it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. We're going to get into that building language a bit more in a minute, but you see it says that Jesus is the cornerstone of the building. He's the cornerstone of the temple, you could say. Now, I'm not a general contractor, not an architect, I'm not the guy you want coming over to your house to fix anything. Okay, I could screw in a light bulb, I could do a few things, but I'm not your guy. But I've read enough about uh, these sorts of things to know that cornerstones were, were quite important. They're the most important stone or piece in the building, especially in the ancient world, is the first and most important stone that was laid of the foundation. The other stones were placed in relation to it. It was the cornerstone that determined the angle and the position of the entire structure. Upon the cornerstone, the whole foundation and the whole building would ultimately stand. So Paul takes that simple image to say Jesus is the cornerstone of his church. In him we are joined together. Upon him and his gospel we stand. That's our message, Christ crucified. And so we're not just a social club. We're not just a potluck committee. We like to eat food together, although we do that. We're not just a place where vague spiritual sentiments and attaboys are shared. We're a place where the gospel of Jesus is preached. We're sinners like you and me are invited to draw near to God through the work of Christ and trust in him. So we're a new people centered on Jesus. Now you see there's more here in this text that tells us about what it means to be the church. A few different images. A new people, citizens, that's one of them. But look what else we see. We see we're a new family. You see that family language in verse 19? It says you're no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Household, that's family language. We can draw near to God as our Father. And don't we see the language of brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the New Testament? It's family language. That's one of the main images for what a church is. We are part of the the family of God. So when we send out an email that says, dear FBC family, or when we talk about being a a church family, that's not just like cliche or, oh, that just sounds nice. We're going to throw that in there. It's in reality how the scriptures describe us. A new family. We're adopted in because of Jesus. We have God as our Father. And that's intimate language, isn't it? That's deeply personal language. Because being citizens of a kingdom, I mean, that's, you know, kingdoms are big. There's a lot of citizens. But being members of a family, I mean, that's a lot more personal. That gets at the the intimate relationship we share with God, our Father, with our brothers and sisters, the, the love and unity that is supposed to be on display in the church. 
It's powerful because family is one of the most significant experiences that we have in life, for good or bad, right? Some of our greatest joys, greatest moments of security and peace and support and strength come from our families. But also, right, if family doesn't go well, some of our deepest wounds, some of our greatest pain comes in the context of family. So it's this this powerful picture We are a new family. Not all of us come from healthy families or have had healthy family experiences, so that complicates it a little bit. We don't always know how to do family well. And yet in the church, we have this opportunity to practice love and care and belonging as a new family. We could say a lot more on that, but we have to move on. We're a new family and we're a new temple. You see that language in verse 20 built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The church is a building, a a temple, not made of literal bricks and stones, but made up of what? Of people. Right, together we are built into a structure, so to speak, There's this image of a building or a temple where God dwells. Verse 22, in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is big, because think about uh, in in the Old Testament where God would dwell. If the people were to ask, where is God? Where does he dwell? They would say, well, he's in the temple. That's where his presence is most powerfully manifest. I mean, yes, God is omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere. There's nowhere that he is not. And yet, in a special way, for the Jews, they saw, no, God is in his temple, in the holy of holies. The presence of God is profoundly seen and on display. It was his, his headquarters, you could say. His center of operations in the world is the temple. But now Paul's saying something else. He's saying, hey, you, church, are being built together to be a temple in the Lord where God dwells by his spirit. So God is present not in some literal physical building. He's present where his people are. Where the people of God gather, we are built together to be a temple where God dwells. Where the church gathers, that's his center of operations, his headquarters, the center of his work in the world. It's where his people gather as the Spirit indwells us. Yes, we're individually indwelt by the Spirit, but also collectively as we gather corporately God's spirit is present and moving among us. So the New Testament, you see this this big, beautiful picture it paints, right? This high view of the church. We're a new people, citizens of the kingdom of God. We're a new family. We're a, a new temple, all centered on Jesus. But let's be honest, we don't always have this experience of the church, do we? Sometimes we grumble about the shortcomings of the church or or the ways we've been hurt by the church or the things that are wrong with the church or things that could be better in the church, right? There's some barriers to belonging in the church. There's some things that get in the way of us experiencing the church as this big, beautiful reality it's intended to be. So the Love Your Church book, I love how in chapter one it references, here's some of the obstacles to community. Here are some of the things that kind of get in the way of us experiencing the church in this way. And so I want to walk through a few barriers to belonging this morning 
Uh, you saw them in the chapter likely already, or you will when you read it, but I wanted to highlight them here because I think it's really helpful the way they laid it out. Some of the things that get in the way. First, they mentioned sensationalism. Sensationalism is a barrier to belonging. When we always need something bigger and better and more exciting to be satisfied. Right? The, the church is the supernatural reality where lives are changed forever and we do big things in the name of God, of course, but a lot of the life of the church is rather ordinary, sometimes is unseen, often is overlooked, the small, faithful steps of obedience and love and service that happen every day, every week, that aren't always super flashy or exciting, we overlook them, and we think, well, yes, God's at work in the big, in the exciting, in the dramatic but we kind of get disappointed when we see things that are ordinary. Right? It's not always big and exciting and dramatic when you bring a meal to a family that's going through a scary surgery. But it's powerful. It's not always big and exciting and dramatic when you serve in the nursery and there's two kids in the nursery that morning. And you're showing them the love of Jesus. Most people aren't going to see that. Right? It's not going to end up on Instagram. But God sees it. It's not always big and exciting and, and dramatic when you simply welcome in a lonely person to fellowship. When you invite someone to your community group who's maybe a little bit difficult to love and you say, no, you belong here as well. It's not always big or exciting or dramatic, yet it's powerful. I fall prey to this as well, right? Pastors, we do this, we think, well, God's moving when the room is full. And that's when we really know God was there that day. But God moves just the same when there's few people in the room, right? Where his gospel is preached and we gather in worship and we love one another. And so sometimes we get disgruntled or disappointed because it's not as sensational as we think it should be. But don't overlook, friends, the small, simple steps of love and obedience that go on in the life of the church. Second, we let mysticism get in the way. Mysticism, this is where we see our personal and mystical experiences as the truly spiritual life. And we ignore community and relationship. This is where we overemphasize the private life of faith. You know, the really spiritual moments are when you like withdraw and you're, you know, a hermit in the woods and you just sit there with God or you look out at nature and that's where God meets you in solitude that's where the true spiritual life is, we say. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, solitude is important. Retreat is important. Going into nature to be with the Lord and, and be in awe of his beautiful creation, that's powerful. We should do that. But we should not do that at the expense of the normal gathering of the church. We should say, hey, well, that's where the true spiritual life is lived. So this kind of like, you know, weekly, every day, or every week gathering thing on the first day of the week, I mean, that's kind of not as important, not as special. Not much happens there. The real good stuff happens out there. It's like, no, the, I mean, really the center, uh, the normative, the regular ongoing pattern for how we are to grow and experience God is through the life of the church, through gathering together. In, in the book, Tony Merida, the author wrote this. He said, to be best placed to experience Jesus in a deep fresh, life-changing way. You don't need a perch in the desert. You need a pew in a church. You don't need a perch in the desert. You need a pew in the church. All right, I need a fresh experience of God. What should I do? Come to church. You should come to church. 
You can also withdraw in solitude and go on a wilderness retreat. Go for it. Great. But don't miss coming to church. My pastor Scott, uh, my pastor friend Scott from Hawaii once pointed out, he's like, hey, Matt, you notice when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church? When the Holy Spirit comes in power in Acts chapter 2? It's at Pentecost, right? It's when the, when the church, church really is born and, and the people of God receive the Spirit and they move out on mission. He's like, was Pentecost a time of solitude and isolation or was it a time of noisy gathering? He's like, when the Spirit fell, when the church was empowered, it was, they weren't on some like mountain wilderness retreat. They were gathered in a, in a busy, noisy city. It's probably overcrowded. It's probably loud. It's probably smelly. It's probably hot. That's where the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. And so we don't need to go into the quiet necessarily to experience God. We need to gather together in worship. Third, idealism gets in the way. Chapter describes it this way. When we let our wish dream for our church get in the way of us loving the real people in front of us. I've been there. You ever been there? Where we don't love the church we actually have because we love the idea of the church we wish we had. We get disgruntled with the real life people in front of us and the real relationships because, oh, wouldn't it be great if church looked this way? Wouldn't it be great if church was more of this or less of this and this is just... (laughs) Idealism. Or we've all heard it. We've all felt it in different ways, right? I wish our church had more people my age. I wish there were more young people here. I wish there were more, uh, you know, empty nesters here. I wish the, the coffee was better. I wish the preaching was more engaging or shorter, definitely. I wish the music was better, right? I wish the technology was better. I wish we had a better online presence. If, if we could just, like, hit some of those benchmarks I have, I'd, I'd come around a bit more. I'd engage a bit more. It's just kind of silly because, I mean, no church is perfect, Right? And of course, we want to address those areas. We want to we grow. We want to be better. We want to uh, worship with, with excellence and have quality in all that we do. We want to be thoughtful and intentional. So it's not that those things don't matter. It's just that when we use those things as a, as a reason to stay away, like once the church cleans up its act and gets better, then I'll show up. It's like, what if instead you said, what if the Lord would be calling me to be here and contribute and serve and help this place be all that it could be? And be a part of the future of this church. Right? Rather than, oh, it's not up to my standards, I'm out. Let's just engage and serve and make this place uh, all that God wants it to be and invest here. And this gets back to the family piece, right? If we're family, that changes how we approach to it. Right? If we're family, well, no family's perfect, but I, I love the family I have. This is the family I have. So I'm gonna love them. These are the parents I have. You know, I think about my own parents. Not perfect parents. They're good parents. I love them. They're the parents I have. I'm so grateful for them. Right? And if you think about it, if your mom burns a meal, you're going to be like, Mom, we had a good run. <laughs> but I'm out. You know? Figure this out, and I'll come back. But for now, I'm going to have dinner at Joey's house the rest of the week. You know? No, you see, like, I'm here. And that's what we're called to in the church. So idealism gets in the way. Next, Individualism. This one's big. We think it's about us and Jesus, and we go it alone. This is kind of like mysticism, but it's me and Jesus, and I don't need really other people. But it's so interesting. Like, you read through the New Testament, you read Ephesians chapter 2 like we just did, and think about all the images that Paul uses. You are citizens of a kingdom. You are a member of a family. 
you are a stone in a building. All of those images are corporate, communal language. Right? It's all about how you are one part of a greater story. You're one piece of the picture. And so you don't exist on your own over here. You're not a brick like thrown next to the building over there. You're a brick in the building, right? You're a member of the body elsewhere, he says. It's not gonna, like going to chop the hand off and say it's going to be better off over there. It has to be connected to the body to do what it's supposed to do and thrive how it's supposed to thrive. So the Lone Ranger Christianity, it's just so foreign to the New Testament. It's such a, like a Western American individualized thing. It makes no sense in light of the New Testament. And I don't, I don't know today, you know, if, if people really believe they're better off on their own or if, again, sometimes we use that as like a reason to, uh, to stay away. You know, like, just, it's a reason to keep things at arm's length. I don't have to plug in. But there's this old proverb you've probably heard. It's not a proverb in the Bible, but it's, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Hear that? If you want to go fast, go alone, especially if you have little kids. If you want to go fast, don't bring them. If you want to go fast, don't bring them. Go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. So those four are mentioned in the book. Uh, there's one more I didn't talk about, though, that I think we need to talk about, another barrier to belonging, and it's sin. Right? Can we be honest? That, that in the church, we wound and are wounded. Maybe you've been sensing this all morning, like, I don't know, Pastor, I mean, this sounds good. You paint the church as this big, beautiful family and this place of love and belonging, but there's all these stories of people who have been hurt in the church or kicked out of the church or wounded by the church in this church or another church. Right? And so we have to deal with that honestly and just acknowledge, yeah, that's true. Tragically, uh, there's, there's blemishes on the record of the church in history. We can't deny it, can't minimize it. So we need to be honest about it. We need to repent where we need to repent, to seek forgiveness where we've been part of the problem, where we've wounded other people. We need to have uh, patience with people, right? If they have wounds from the church or people in the church, they might need some space and time to heal and time to rest. They need people to say, hey, I understand, I love you, I'm sorry that uh, that happened to you. I understand why it might be hard for you to trust the church or trust church leadership after what you've been through. And yet to still show up and say that we love you, we want to encourage you however we can. And of all people, we should be the ones who are the quickest to seek uh, reconciliation, the quickest to say, um, I need your forgiveness. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. We can be a powerful uh, demonstration to the watching world of how honesty and humility and forgiveness is supposed to be played out. Because we've been forgiven so much. And so we can extend that to others. I've shared this before, but I, I think this closing illustration is so helpful because, again, we're talking about belonging to the life of the church, belonging as the people of God and how individualism and other things often get in the way. I think of this story from the life of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, where a man once told him, you know what, I believe I can be just as good of a Christian outside of the church as I can be inside of the church. I don't need the church to follow Jesus. And Moody didn't say anything. 
He just looked over at the fire in the room that was burning against the cold winter outside, and he, he reached his tongs in and grabbed one single burning coal from the fire, and he brought it out and set it on the hearth next to it. And the two men just watched as the coal burned out. And the man said, I see. We need one another. Uh, this, this morning has been mostly about who we are as a church. All these images, a citizenship, a family, a temple. There's more, right? The, the body of Christ. Of course, we didn't even talk about that. There's so many. All these images about what the church is supposed to be about. But I love that David was here this morning, that the story of compassion is being shared this morning because that only tells us who we are as a church, but it gets into a glimpse of the work we're supposed to be about, right? what we're supposed to do in the world. Such a powerful picture of that, moving with compassion and love towards our neighbors, especially those in extreme poverty in the name of Jesus, sharing the good news and meeting real needs of food and education and shelter and encouragement. What a beautiful picture of our call to go into the world. And it's so fun that we get to do that together, right? It's not just about one person sponsoring one child, as powerful as that is, but, but our story here is that we've done this together. Back in 2019, again, we started this new child development center with compassion in, in uh, Togo in the village of Daura. We gave a special gift to get the money so that they could launch the center. Then a little bit later, we gave another special gift. Many of you remember this at the end uh, of the year. We did a bathroom and latine, uh, latrine project and building there. We gave the money to start that. We also contributed special money to uh, give to school supplies, chairs, and desks in the classroom. And if you add all of that up, all those one-time gifts, uh, it's about $26,000 that we've given together to that project. That's special, but that's not even counting child sponsorships, okay? That's just all the money, just one-time gifts. Here, get the development center started and a few little projects. If you add in the, the sponsorship money, if you do the math, 60 kids sponsored for three and a half years. It's, again, we have more than 60 now because a bunch of people have to first serve as sponsored. That's great, but let's just take on the low end, the number 60, $38 a month for three and a half years. That means in child sponsorship money, you all have given collectively $95,760. When you add that to the 26,000 of the one-time gifts, that's over $120,000 you, church, have given. In three and a half years, $120,000. That's amazing. And that, that's above and beyond. That, that's not even factored into like our church budget. Right? Like your normal tithes and offerings and giving to keep the lights on and pay the staff and all that. Like, not even included in that is $121,000 above and beyond to love people halfway around the world in the name of Jesus and care for them. Isn't it so fun when we do this together? It's, it's so inspiring. And so if you haven't sponsored a child, again, today could be the day you change their life. And if you already are sponsoring a child, well done. We celebrate that with you. Would you uh, continue to do that with joy? And who knows, maybe you want to add another one today. I don't know. But with that, friends, let me, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are so good, and we thank you for being the cornerstone, the foundation upon which we as your church are built. Thank you for saving us, bringing us into your family through your work. 
Thank you that we have uh, your kingdom written on our passport. We have a new home, a new identity. And Lord, we get to be a part of your work in the world. I don't know what could be better, Lord. Thank you. We love you. Pray you'd move in our hearts, uh, especially those who maybe are considering sponsorship right now. Would you speak to them, direct them? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.